This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Antonio T. Bly about escaping slavery a documentary history of Native American runaways in British North America, published by Lexington Books in 2022. Dr. Bly holds the Peter H. Shattuck Endowed Chair in Colonial American History at California State University, Sacramento, a.k.a. Sac State, a.k.a. my department. Dr. Bly earned his Ph.D. in American Studies at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg in 2006, and then joined the faculty of Appalachian State University in 2007. For a decade, he was the director of the Africana Studies program there. In 2019, he joined us here in California, and we are delighted to have him as a colleague. His previous books include Escaping Servitude, a documentary history of runaway servants in colonial Virginia, co-authored with Tamia Haygood, out, out with Lexington Books in 2015, and Escaping Bondage, a documentary history of runaway slaves in 18th century uh, New England, 1700 uh, to 1789, excuse me, uh, out with Lexington Books in 2012. Professor Antonio Bly, Tony, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you for the invite. So uh, before we get into Escaping Slavery, um, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your development as a scholar? Um, I mean, how did you come to be someone uh, who specialized in slavery in colonial America? And then, you know, with this project, um, slavery of indigenous people in colonial America? Well, uh, like, like most historians, history starts at home. And so I started at home. Uh, I am a graduate of Norfolk State University before I went to William and Mary. And history has always been something that I knew I was going to do. I just didn't know at the time what I was going to actually do. And so when I finally began to discover what I wanted to do was history, the question became, whose history? And since I knew very little about my own history, that's where I started, African-American history. And upon completing my BA in history at Norfolk State, uh, the doors of opportunity began to open up to me and I ended up going to William and Mary 
and the question then came up again, whose history? And early American history became the place that has become my home and will probably probably remain my home uh, for many years to come. And so slavery interests me like many kids growing up in the 70s. I was fascinated by Alex Haley's Roots, the miniseries, and then later on the book. And I started digging into that. And uh, when I was a grad student, I had a student come to me. Uh, I was teaching in a summer program, like most graduate students do. And I had a student ask a question about slavery that really got my attention. And that was, you know, were slaves taught to read, to write, and write? And I said, you know, reflectively, I said, yes. And that started the two of us having this really long conversation only for me to discover that in that conversation, uh, the first seeds of my dissertation was planted, which was looking at slave literacy uh, in colonial Virginia. Most, most people might not know this, but uh, Virginia and Williamsburg specifically, they had a school for enslaved children that ran for 14 years uh, Anne Wager was the school mistress. She taught uh, slaves primarily how to read, read well enough to understand the Bible. And then from there, it progressed into lessons that for a few students included penmanship, writing. And I developed that work uh, as my PhD thesis. And as a part of that work, I was comparing literate slaves in Virginia to those that I knew about in other colonies like New York and Pennsylvania and, and Massachusetts. And that is when the journey got really interesting. I spent about two years uh, in uh, the archives at the Library of Congress, just going through newspapers, trying to find a, 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 a resource that indicated literacy and, and in newspaper advertisements, that's where I found uh, indications that some enslaved people were being taught to read and others were being taught to read and write. And so that really started the, the, the process of me doing these documentary histories. So I started combing through the papers in microfilm form and transcribing things. And I started initially with New England and after I finished that part of it, I believe it was Lathan Winley's work. Uh, Lathan Winley is like the, the, the guru of uh, documentary histories for, for anybody who likes to get into it. But he did uh, Colonial Virginia, Maryland, uh, uh, Georgia, South, North Carolina. He, he, he transcribed all those runaway slave ads. And so he kind of did a lot of homework for me. And I, I built on his house by bringing into the conversation the ads that were not published at the time uh, for your New England colonies. And so in a very roundabout way, what, what I was doing was trying to find what would amount to a, a signature of literacy. And, and so that's, that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, when I finished the, 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 the PhD thesis at the time, Reese Isaac, a, a dear friend of mine, uh, had asked me a question at the end of my defense. He said, okay, Tony, what are you going to do? Uh, 
now. And, it, you know, I looked at her, but I said, of course, I'm going to try to publish this thing. Right. And we both laughed. But I said, but before I do that, I think I, I need to do something with these ads. And he said, good answer. And so <laughs> I knew from the way he responded to me that that was going to be my first book before uh, the actual thesis, which is the usual route most of us would take. Uh, and so fast forward a couple of years, I had to go back to the Library of Congress, look back into the archives. I'm trying to get as much of the primary sources as I can. And, and, and then I contacted a different a, a set of different publishers trying to find a home for the book that will become Escaping Bondage. And Lexington uh, sent back a positive response. And the rest, as they say, is history. And so <laughs> that's that's the research end of the thing. But in terms yeah. of the going back around back to my background, I think history has always been something that I knew was on the horizon. Colonial history in particular, uh, I knew was something that I wanted to do. I cannot explain to you why colonial versus why not 19th century history or 20th century. It just felt like home. And yeah, yeah. rather than fight the tide, I went with it. And so far, it's, it's taken me a long way so far to um, to California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it makes sense geographically. I mean, if you're if you're at William and Mary, I mean, you're you're right in the heart of this area. I mean, the you know, <laughs> colonial Williamsburg's right, right there. Right. Um, yeah. You know, growing up in Hawaii, that all seemed so exotic to me. I, I've been to colonial Williamsburg once, uh, I think I was in grad school and, um, that was like a whole nother world. But, um, that, you know, if you're, if you're from that region, it, it seems oftentimes sort of natural that we slide into specializing in our, in our geography. How did, so how did you, um, I mean the, the first, uh, your first work is on enslaved African-Americans and mm-hmm. then this project's on enslaved indigenous Americans, native Americans. How did you, um, how were you, how did you take the project uh, that's that's <laughs> similar but into a different community? Well, you know, the, the sources took me where I needed to go. Uh, yeah. Once you start digging through the microfilm, what you're going to discover as you're going through newspapers is that everyone and everything is being advertised. And mm-hmm. so, as I'm going through and I'm finding runaway slaves, I kept finding. In addition to those individuals, runaway indentured servants. And amongst those individuals, you you know, in addition to those individuals, you will find runaway Indians. And so as I was working my way through the microfilm, I made notations in my notes and just, you know, plowed through it. Just, okay, I'll I'll come back to it someday, maybe. And to be honest with you, initially, uh, it was not a subject that that held my attention for very long because I was finding so much in, in, in the form of African-American slaves. And then later on, what had happened, I had a grad student come up to me and approach me about doing the work uh, with indigenous people. And he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. And, and I just like in a kind of passing way said to him, it's like, you know, there are lots of ads for Indians. Why don't you do something with that? And so he, he and I sat down, we talked about it, and he ended up saying, no, I, I don't really want to do that particular thing. I want to do something else. 
And there it sat on my desk, or should I say in a folder, because I had transcribed some of them uh, for many years. And so when I came to Sac State, it just seemed like the, the circumstances had aligned in such a way that opened the door for me to revisit the subject. And so mm -hmm. by that time, Tamia and I had worked together on doing indentured servants in Virginia. And I already had the book out about uh, African-Americans in New England. And it just seemed like the logical progression for me. And so when I got here and I took the post as being the endowed chair in colonial American history, uh, the, the, the next step was Native Americans. And so I sat down and, and really started to plow through the ass all over again. But, you know, with the passage of time, wonders occur. And the wonder that occurred is that a lot of the material that I labored over in the Library of Congress was now scanned. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this is really Life cool. Life got a lot easier with the digital revolution, huh? Absolutely. I'm no longer a dinosaur, you know, or I'm a reformed dinosaur. And <laughs> and you can you can do that work from uh, on uh, Virginia and, and New England from some crazy outpost like uh, Sacramento, California, right? Absolutely. You know, but it's, it's, it's not the same. But, you know, I spent years in the archives going back and forth to the Library of Congress for several years. I knew what to look for. I knew how to look for it. And then when I was introduced to a database where things were searchable, which is another one of those things that are a blessing in disguise, I started plowing through it and the book became the product of, of, of that work. But I, I have to take a moment to acknowledge Vivian Tang, who helped mm -hmm. me with the transcription. She's a grad student. Well, she was a grad student. She's a successful uh, educator now. Uh, but she helped me. What, what, one of my former students, work. too. <laughs> oh, okay. Great. Yeah. You know? no, I'm, I'm a big Vivian Tang fan. <laughs> and so big she shout and I out got to her. Absolutely. She and I got together. I had already transcribed so much of it. And I said, let's let's do all 13. And by 13, I mean the 13 original colonies. And yeah. so she and I plowed through it and the book became a finished product. And uh, I'm very happy with it. Yeah. And were you guys doing this during COVID? Uh, no, we were doing it before COVID happened. Okay. And then okay. it, it kind of carried over into COVID. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, where, where it would have to be online and you'd have to have that digital access. Right. Because it, initially when I trained her, we were doing face-to-face -face classes. Mm. And then as we started digging into the work, COVID happened and then everything went online. But by that time, uh, she had all she needed in order to uh, get at the materials and help me transcribe as much of it as, as we got Fantastic. And can I ask you, the, um, so obviously the first book, Escaping Bondage, is on um, runaway enslaved uh, African-Americans, uh, people of African descent. Is Escaping Servitude is who, about runaway servants? Are, are these, what's the ethnic background of these runaway servants, these indentured laborers? This, the Escaping Servitude book is about European servants who would be brought over or who would enter into contractual agreements with planters in Virginia and, uh, you know, come to Virginia, work for a period of time and and hopefully get their freedom. That's the 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 rose colored version uh, mm -hmm. of that story. 
the truth of it is when they got here, uh, many of the indentured servants from backgrounds that were German in nature, Irish, uh, English, Dutch, French, when they got here, what they discovered is that Virginia was another form of hell, (laughs) (laughs) which partly explains why a lot of them ran away. Uh, Masters weren't treating them well. Masters weren't uh, honoring the terms of the contract. Uh, In many instances, they found themselves uh, running away with not only themselves, other Europeans, but also Africans or African-Americans. And in some instances in that book, we came across notices where they were running away with Native Americans as well. And so it really gives you a different picture of early America. And it really forces you to think critically about matters of race and class. And and eventually, I guess we're going to get that gender becomes an mm-hmm. issue as well. And so that, so the way I see it is uh, like one of my, my colleagues called me the runaway man. <laughs> I take it affectionately. Um, first you started with slaves. Now you're doing it servants. Now you're doing Indians. And then, Later on, I'm, I'm currently working on a project, uh, Husbands and Wives. We'll talk about that hopefully uh, yeah. near the end. So Yeah, yeah. No, just I, I ask is just taken as a whole, it shows how you're, you're going through these categories of race, ethnicity, gender, yeah. and really um, uh, parsing out various forms of unfreedom in right. this time period. And I think that's so fascinating. Um uh, and obviously something that's been in the national discourse, especially in the past couple of years. I mean, the, the 1619 Project and a number right. of other issues that have been in the news, shall we say, um, have really <laughs> brought a lot of this out. And um, I think that your work adds this level of complexity and, um, you know, that the, the the first part for many people, these conversations are kind of in these, I don't want to say stereotypes, but sort of in these these bigger chunks of thinking and now you're really parsing things out and dicing things up and again having a level of complexity and nuance that i really appreciate um let me let me ask you about the structure of escaping slavery i mean this is a documentary history and um you decided to present your research present the documents um, as opposed to writing up the traditional academic monograph of some 250 tightly written pages with footnotes and <laughs> and literature review and and you know all, all the rest the, of the the rituals that we go through in academic publishing, right. whereas here you're sort of giving us the um, the raw material with relatively little framing, um, other than uh, you're, obviously it's edited and you've you've established a chronological and a geographic structure right. and there's some appendices at the end um why did you want to go in that direction as opposed to um well why why, why do you show us instead of telling us mm. that's a good, really good question and to sound somewhat uh vain <laughs> maybe that's not <laughs> the right word to sound somewhat vain something else will come to me in a minute uh i would rather be read than read. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. You have two types of historians, I think. Maybe there are more. There probably is. You have the type of historian who will write a traditional monograph and the work will be read and it'll be circulated among 
primarily a, a select group of scholars, and, and that's to be expected. And the book will have a certain uh, life, say, the, the life of the individual. Okay. And then you have the type of historian which I discovered that I am, a, I am and that is you, you have the type of historian who keeps time. That's all he or she does. They keep time. They're a watcher. But they also are a chronologer to some extent. And what they do is they go into the vast fragmented record that exists and pull out of it snapshots of the past. And their work usually enjoys a longer life than the traditional historian. The perfect analogy, at least for me, has been Dr. Lathan Winley who I referenced earlier, he published uh, a documentary history about runaway slaves, primarily in the South. Now, Winley did that work in the 70s, but if you look at the work about slavery from that point forward, Winley is one of those historians who would be cited repeatedly. In other words, we're building on his work and it going into different directions. And so when I say I would rather be read than read, I would, like, I would rather be the person that starts the conversation and, be, and, and, and serves as a foundation for an ongoing conversation among scholars, among students. Because I think sometimes we, make, we, we write monographs, and I do have a monograph project that I intend to get out of me one of these days. Uh, I, I think it starts kind of from a place where we're having a conversation with our peers. And sometimes that conversation doesn't reach the students. And, and, and I have something of a problem with that. And, and I think documentary histories are, are much more user-friendly in mm-hmm. the sense that they give the students the raw data, the raw document, and only ask of the student how they how they make sense of it, whereas a monograph is usually making a significant contribution to to a conversation, but it's telling you to some extent how to think, how to read it. I think that I, I, I prefer that the past speak for itself, with the understanding that sometimes we're going to get it wrong and sometimes we're going to get it right. Mm-hmm. But regardless of that, we're still moving forward learning and understanding and reflecting and contemplating and building what will be the next, you know, iteration of what we call history. Yeah, so fantastic. It's, it's, and I think this is all really important uh, right now where um, we're actually speaking in early November 2022 um, in the weeks and months after um, uh, a rather controversial column from the um president of the American Historical Association yes. on on how we should do history that was followed up with um, um, an interview in The Atlantic by David Frum um, of the Axis of Evil speech. I don't know why that guy's still around. But um, anyway, um, <laughs> David Frum, uh, <laughs> and in, in that interview with uh, James Sweet, um, AHA president, he, he gave this sort of rather... Uh, I mean, small C conservative, um, I don't want to say reactionary, but very traditional 
um, academic defense of the monograph and really questioned um, some of the new directions in um, uh, outreach that historians are doing, shall we say. And I I say this as someone who published a graphic history. It's a it's a damn comic book. Right. But it's it's like real serious work of some 20 something years of archival research. And um, I think, yeah, actually, I mean, I really like what you're saying about you know, reaching the students, but also ways that we can reach the general public. And I think right. that it would really behoove the profession to, to take that seriously because um, monographs are important, but they're part of an ongoing conversation amongst scholars, amongst, uh, you know, the elite in the ivory tower. Whereas, you know, your project here can, can reach a very wide audience. I can, I could assign this to my undergraduates in a world history class to talk about uh, various forms of unfreedom where um, more theoretically, more like, you know, heavily scholarly work I wouldn't be able to do. So that's, that's fantastic. Now I want to, I want to get into the, um, get into these documents. So these are advertisements for, um, for runaway native Americans um, who are escaping various forms of unfreedom. Um, First, um, could you tell us a bit about the nature of these documents? Where did they appear? Who wrote them? How widely were they circulated? Uh, is this something that um, the average uh, literate person would see on a, on a daily, <laughs> weekly basis? Um, I mean, are they like uh, you know, are they the equivalent of those uh, those uh, phone calls we get telling us about our? Uh, our um, uh, auto policy needs to be renewed or, or like, is that, you know, they're like classified ads that people are going to see all the time in a, in a, in a, in a time where there's much less media. And also do they, um, they follow certain tropes or, or are there sort of literary rules of the genre? Like what, what, what do these ads look like in general? Okay. So your, your typical ad will have uh, a general statement at the beginning and a general statement at the end, something to to the effect, run away from the subscriber, uh, Native American man. They never identify the tribe or ethnic group or culture that they come from because what these ads are doing is homogenizing people. And so this is like, when you look at this, uh, book history is, 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 is really interesting to me and it's, it's part of my work. This is where print begins to convert native people from many complex cultures into Indians, you know, and, but the typical ad will start out, run away from subscriber and the person's name. And then they would usually give you like a mug shot. They're this tall, this stout, uh, has a scar on the side of their face, they've been branded or they are tattooed, uh, missing teeth, uh, missing an eye. And then it will get down to the business at hand, the, the public solicitation. I will give you this reward for securing this person and returning them. And it always, I always laugh at it nowadays. And, uh, they will say the reward and all other charges. You know, it's a it's a it's a boilerplate type of phrase, which means I'm going to give you the reward, but I'm also going to give you any expense that you incurred in the process of trying to capture this person. And so, 
that's your typical ad. Now, how do we get these things out? How do we publish them? Many early Americans cannot read. And to be honest with you, they don't need to know how to read because your local authorities are going to create an avenue for these ads to be published orally. And so if you go to the courthouse, before the, the court uh, proceedings occur, usually there's a notice or notices, a series of them posted on the door. They will be read aloud. And then after the proceedings, they will be read aloud. Uh, in Virginia, uh, before the, 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 the parson would do the sermon, the clerk would read from the newspaper. <laughs> you know, in and church. so as a part in, in church. church. Yeah. In church. That's <laughs> and so we got some business before we get to the Lord's business, we have some earthly business we need to conduct. And that that was <laughs> that was really commonplace in places in the South. And also to some extent, I've I've seen references in the North as well. And so you have your courthouses, your churches. We cannot forget your taverns and your pubs. These things are being read aloud. And more important than the reading itself, they're being discussed. See, I think that element, this is like, this is what really fascinates me because I can stand within one ad and, and, and it becomes like a motion picture for me at times because I can see people hearing the reader read the ad highlighting what's important, the physical uh, features of the individual, the reward, and, and and cautioning people against, you know, helping or concealing these people. And then you can see the public actually engaging it actively, like talking about it, contemplating, for example, is this well worth my, 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 my efforts to, like, pursue this individual? And so they become like these living documents that that I think really works well in the classroom situation. When you you give a student a document, you try to explain to them, this is how these things are published. This is why I love your question. This is thing, this is how these things are published. And so imagine for a moment how people are processing this information. And so is there like, wow, we have this, uh, we'll, we'll talk about Julian and the set, I hope. Uh, we have this individual who is guilty of the crime of murder but is he really you know because the reason why he committed the act is because another human being was trying to return him to an ugly situation oh, no, no no spoilers we'll talk about julian in a oh, second okay. here i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna cut you <laughs> off right there sir right. i want had I, that, that julian story i want i want you to tell that story in its entirety in just a few minutes but um okay. but the this this idea of sort of the social life of these documents, yes. and um, the the lack of literacy in the community and the way they be read is so important. And um, thinking of them as something that's yeah living long after they're they're printed in the paper. I did uh, years ago. I did some work on postcards produced in colonial Vietnam of images of the colonial lifestyle created by the French. And one of the one of the things that they did is they had a whole series of executions. Of, yes. um, of Vietnamese being executed that they took photographs of and turned into a postcard that someone would buy as the thing they want to send home to France to say, hey, life's great here in colonial Hanoi. You know, hey, by the way, they, they executed these rebels. And what does it mean to take that image and, and put it into, you know, what um, um, 
Benedict Anderson called print capitalism, uh, right, and, right. and to circulate it around that it has a it has a life as a commodity, and continues on. Um, so what did um. Who, who who's placing these ads? And um, I mean, obviously, white slave owners, right? And um, you know, are, are they from a particular class, particular region, urban versus rural? Um, also, um, could you say a few words about what the documents tell us about the the anxieties and fears of the slave yeah. owners? Yeah, it, it varies from one region to the next. Um, so who who placed these ads? It's, 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 it's an interesting question because how do you define a subscriber? The easiest way to define a subscriber, and that's the, that's the generic term that you'll see in these ads uh, for Native Americans, uh, is a person of, of some means. I don't want to say that they're wealthy because when we're talking about fugitives uh, in, in, in New England compared to fugitives in Virginia, talking about you can sometimes be talking about two different groups of people because the work is different so so like in new england uh, 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 an indigenous person would usually be doing some type of domestic work housework or work about the house gardening cooking uh uh being a body servant we, we know that they've done that as well some could be working on small farms if you compare that to what you see as the driving force of the economy in the southern colonies, then you start getting into medium-sized and large plantations. And so the work can be uh, more difficult, not less, but just a little more difficult, which explains part of the reason why these individuals are running away. But the subscriber in terms of their class can change. So it's like, it's, it's really hard to compare in terms of personal wealth, Thomas Jefferson, I'm just using this as a metaphor, to John Adams. Jefferson owned several hundred slaves. John Adams didn't. Jefferson owned thousands of acres of land. John Adams didn't. He owned a small farm. And so the, the common ground that they, they share is that they're both men of means, but that's kind of where it begins and ends to a certain point. So in terms of the anxiety, this goes back to what the economy is in these different regions. For men uh, of property, men who are landed, and what I mean by landed is they not only own land, but they own persons. The anxiety is high because this is how uh, they define themselves monetarily, but they also define themselves through the possession of these individuals as a unique class of individuals. In smaller situations, say New England or the Mid-Atlantic colonies, think uh, Pennsylvania, New York, Indians can become a status symbol more so than an actual uh, monetary one, if that makes sense. And so- You've got this domestic servant or you've you've got an unfree person in your, as part of your property, right? Yeah. Right. Or or, or, or or they're like a trophy to some extent. Yeah. So if you have a, a personal servant who is attending to your person during this period and you're in Massachusetts, for example, that individual is more or less, uh, unless you actually have been doing domestic work or farming work, usually body servants, 
they're they're trophies to some extent. They're an extension of their owner. They they magnify their owner's place within a larger society. They're usually well dressed, well kept, well fed. It doesn't take anything away from the fact that they're still unfree if not enslaved. Whereas in your your counter agrarian settings, these individuals can also be domestics because there were domestic Native Americans in places like Virginia and Maryland. But for the most part, everybody's going to have some taste of the field, some taste of agricultural work. And so the anxiety is much larger there because it's more than just status. It's about dollars and cents, you know, uh, bread and butter issues, money, you know, uh, but it can be, it is, unfreedom and slavery is tricky, you know, and, and it really kind of varies from one individual to the next. But the anxiety, I, I, to that question, I think the anxiety really comes in when you ask the question from the perspective of the planet, is this about status or is this about wealth? Because they're not always mutually the same thing. You know, this is. You, you just made me think of a, a a painting that I was sharing with my students the other day. Uh, Samuel Shrimpton, he's a grandee in 17th century Massachusetts, and in the corner of this painting, the students never see it. There's this slave standing at a table, and it's, and, and not until I highlight it do they realize it's like for Shrimpton. This is about his status. You know, he, he's, he's dressed well, but because the economy is different in New England, you don't see these large plantations, but you do see these individuals. And the same is true for Native Americans, many of whom uh, uh, are, are being enslaved or bound out initially for reasons of piety, trying to colonize these minds and Christianity becomes a useful tool to, to convert them. And once they're converted, what do we do with them? Many of them are made to work. And I think what you see in this book is the hypocrisy of, of the owners. You, you bring me into Christendom I convert, I pick up your tongue, I take on your westernized version of, of my name, if any aspect of my name survives, right? And then you work me in such a manner that it becomes clear because they're running. I'm not treated well, or I'm not treated exactly, as a yeah. full person. And so I, I protest the situation by running away. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, I mean, that you absolutely see that throughout it in regards to Christianity. And then in your time period, it gets into the early American Revolution. 
And so yes. then it's running, it's running up not just against um, religious morality, but a philosophical political morality. Um, you see, really see the, <laughs> the, the end point of enlightenment values, you know, all men are created equal. Well, yeah, except for those men. And we're not going to talk about women, right? It's all white men are created equal. Right. Um, and I, 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 as you know, I was, the the documents are arranged chronologically, and so uh, you know I know what's coming as we get into the late seventeen sixties, seventeen seventies, into the seventeen eighties, and you, I don't you don't see at least I didn't pick up on any of those enlightenment values being reflected in the documents in the way that you know Christian values uh, are right. reflected earlier. It, again, it shows that hypocrisy, right? Is that what you're getting at? Right. You know that's interesting because. And this is why I love documentary histories, because the work that can be done with this book, just taking this conversation as an example, is that the, the hypocrisy of the American Revolution. What you begin to see as we we get past the 16, I mean, the 1760s, is an uptick in desertions where these deserter ads are including people from all backgrounds. And so when you look at, let's say 1760 to 1780, what you're gonna see is an increase in the number of indentured servants, enslaved African-Americans, and enslaved or bound out or apprenticed uh, Indians running away together. They see it. The trick is we are so racialized today in the 21st century that when you give a student this document, they don't see it. They don't see that these individuals have a different construction of race. You know? And they're saying, I don't care that you're black. I don't care that you are red or whatever the vernacular is for Native American people. The only thing that I care about is that you and I have this common ground. We are trapped in this situation by men who are professing that all men are created equal. <laughs> and we're sitting alongside listening to these conversations, these protestations of, of the chains of slavery and the tyranny of it. And we're saying, who's the slave again? Who's the <laughs> servant again? And what ends up happening is they look at each other and find common ground and they elect to lead together. That That's another one of these these gems in these things that, uh, again, I think I'd rather be read than read. So somebody's going to read this and say, and they're going to take the question that you just asked me and say, you know, yeah, this whole kind of thing about hypocrisy. Let me use these ads to tell that story. And, and, and so for, 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 for your listener, I would say a keyword search, deserter. <laughs> <laughs> and what you're going to find is that becomes a very easy way to navigate this book. You're going to find a lot of desertions going on during the American Revolution. And a yep. lot of that is being partly driven by the rhetoric that that people are hearing in the streets, they're hearing in the bars, they're even hearing in their churches. You know. Yeah, so. I found that that as we get into that later phase, like that increase in the number of, of deserters really interesting. Was there, you know, you, you have, you've got the book organized geographically and then chronologically within the different regions. So you've got new England, mid Atlantic and the Southern colonies. Are there some, uh, I mean, obviously it's a really 
as you touched on, really different economic uh, material conditions in New England as opposed to uh, the southern states in regards to mercantile versus sort of plantation uh, basis of the right. economy. Um, so what, what does that mean for um, the documents? Um, what, like what, what, how, how do the documents display this, uh, the differences between these three regions of uh, colonial America? That's a really loaded and interesting question. And I will answer it this way. We see over time in, in, in the South, the numbers drop um, dramatically. Whereas they are somewhat even in your mid-Atlantic colonies, New York, uh, uh, Pennsylvania. When you get to New England, they're dropping, but not at the, the, the same alarming rate if I was to measure these things out. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is, from the Virginia perspective, racial slavery has so outpaced any other form of bondage, be it indentured servant or Native American slavery, that it isn't thought wise from the planner's perspective um, to invest in that market, for lack of a better way of, of, of putting it. Because New Englanders still, they, they have that kind of religious historical background. Some are sending Native Americans to the Caribbean to work to get rid of them. Others are electing instead to still proselytize to them. But proselytization comes with a price, bondage, if not slavery, right? Whereas in your mid-Atlantic colonies, it's, it's somewhat a mixture of both New England and, and, and Virginia in terms of the mindset. And, and so you tend to have individuals in your mid-Atlantic colonies, Native Americans, the, the ads seem to suggest that there wasn't this dropping away gradually or, or, or dramatically that you would see in Virginia and in New England. And so it raises a series of questions that, again, this book opens the door to it. It's like, why is there uh, an even, I hate to use this word, why is this a modest number of ads for the mid-Atlantic colonies? And the answer really lies in the fact that some of these individuals are moving westward and coming back. And so it's kind of like, this give and take, this this pinball effect. They're, they're leaving and coming back and trading. They're leaving and staying away. Whereas Virginia doesn't, Virginia, Maryland, the Carolinas is not giving Native Americans that that many options. But the broader story is, on the whole, the numbers of Native Americans in the thirteen colonies is dropping, steadily dropping to the point where they're almost decimated. But not quite fully. Yeah. So, so I, I hope um, that, you hope that you hope that what? No, no. I, I hope that yeah. answered the question. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> um, so you you start the book um, with your your writing, your telling of the story of Julian, which um, is, I think, maybe the longest document in the book. Um, it is. I remember his, yeah, his, uh, uh, get, 
after reading your introduction and then and then getting to that document. Um, would you tell us his story and um, why you found his life and death um, so important? I mean, you, I think you told me in the hallway that like th- this is the document that sort of set you set you off, so to speak. You know, yes, Julian's story is the longest one in the book. It is perhaps, in my humble opinion, the most interesting one in the book, but not for the reasons you would think. Most most ads for Native Americans include a, a, a cautionary line, a postscript. Uh, do not harbor, conceal, or entertain these individuals, uh, or you will answer for it by by the law, right? The subtext of that is that the law has power over people. But there's another subtext there that Julian's story kind of brings to the forefront. And that is violence, the potential for violence. And when I came across Julian's story, initially, uh, it was purely by accident. I was transcribing something else and I, I, I think I was in between sips of coffee, literally. And I seen this long ad. And I was like, what is this? Because it wasn't an ad. It wasn't like your typical runaway ad. It started out this kind of um, barbarous story of melancholy. And, and it's, what is this? So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of not looking at it. I am looking at it. And then I read it. And it's like, wow, this, this is... This is different. And in the original ad, Julian is not named at all. You get this, this interesting story of this, this Indian who is owned, and then you get the impression from the ad itself, the person either died or he was sold off, you know, and he became the property of someone else. And then from there, he refused to stay put. And he begins to run. And Mr. Rogers then comes into the story. He sees the ad posted as a bulletin. He takes it down and he pursues the man. And he this is the interesting part. They had and this, to have this would be the, and Mr. Rogers would be like a um he, early he's pursuing Julian for, for profit, right? right. He's like a, he's a early slave of a patrolman. Yeah. So, yeah. so he, he, he takes the ads, he takes the ad down, he pursues the man, uh, largely for profit, right? But here's the thing, because I have to pause the story. There must have been a notice for Julian that existed before all of this. I have not been able to find it. Mm-hmm. That became, mm-hmm. That's why I did the book. I was looking for the, the original notice where uh, Julian was being advertised for. Couldn't find it. What I did find is this, this story. And then that took me off into all these different directions. So it's like, okay, Rogers takes the ad now. He finds Julian. And he, the, the two of them are going back. And in the middle of that, uh, Julian runs away again, you know. And then the, the, the patrolman. Because really, that's what he is. He's a patrolman. His business is to capture and return property. He he catches him again. Property being human beings in this case. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, I'm trying to give it to you that I'm trying to give the pass to you as cold yeah. and calculating as yeah. it was. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, yes, it is a human being, but uh, Rogers don't see it that way. It's a payday, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and so he captures him again. But in the process of catching him that second time, Julian got a knife somewhere and stabs him to death. And it's like, whoa. And so already it has my attention. So I start going back, trying to find the original ad. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, in, in that document, the the death of this guy, it, it's like a Quentin Tarantino scene because like, they, they roll around <laughs> and Julian pulls out a knife and then um, uh, the guy stands up and uh, he's bleeding and someone like they, they, they said they ask him three times, you know, are you yeah. are you hurt? And he and he says, I'm I think I'm stabbed. I don't know. And then falls I mean, over dead or mortally wounded. And he drops yeah. to his death. Boom. And, and then it's cinematic. It's cinematic. It really is. And while he's dropping, Julian's running to the cornfield. Yeah. Run. This is a Tarantino film. Tarantino, yeah. if you're listening, you need to call me. Right? <laughs> so it is a bloody, gory scene, but it's the first ad that I ever came across where the warnings in as for African Americans or as for indentured servants or even other uh, Native Americans, it, this is the first ad that kind of unpacks the implications of the warning. And that's what fascinated me about it. It's like, wow, all these warnings, I've always knew what they meant as, you know, as an academic, and I've been doing this for years, right? But now I actually have a primary document that fills that part of the story in. And so when I could not find Julian's original ad, what I discovered that in the process of looking for him, I had transcribed all of New England. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I, I'm not going to find him. But I, I looked at my desk and I had a pile of papers with these transcriptions and said, mm, I think there's a work here. you know. Yeah. And before I realized it, I moved from the newspaper into the court records. And that's why I found, that's why I found Julian's name. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. And so it started growing just organically. And uh, I said, he, he, he's the intro. He's the intro. He's kind of my, my thumbnail into this complex world where uh, people are looked upon as property, chattel. And, and, and they're treated in, in really horrible ways. And, and, and in this particular instance, this man fights back other than just running away. He fights back by killing another person. And then the whole court record is fascinating because it's like an episode of Law and Order. This man goes into court and he, he defends himself. He advocates for his, he, you know, he advocates for himself. And there's this, some weird things going on in the, in, in the court record. Did he stab him? Was it an accident? I loved it. And, uh, and, and Julian then, when all the avenues available to him are exhausted, he does what anybody would do in this period. He calls for the priest and he asks people for mercy. That is rich. And it's yeah. like, okay, don't kill me. In other words, the Christianity that he's been exposed to, he's asking him to, he's asking his captors to honor, 
by allowing him to live. And that's where it gets. And, and then this is where I, I'm sorry if I talk too much. You, you know, you know me, Mike. But so. that's literally why you're on the podcast is to talk. <laughs> this sorry. is like this is this is your golden opportunity, my friend. You know, <laughs> but I appreciate it, and and I and, and I, I beg your 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 listeners' indulgence. So, in the middle of all this, he sits down and he writes his life story down. That's a rare find. That is an extremely rare find, and it's not long, but it's really interesting because. What he tells us is that, you know, I accepted my my plight in life as having murdered this man, but please forgive me for the sin the, the sins of my past and find it in your heart to 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 just incarcerate me. And of course the church people they 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 it's funny, they they carry him from one church to the next. It's almost like they were advertising. This is a cautionary tale of what not to do. And at the end of the day, they say, we still going to hang you. <laughs> and then yeah, what yeah. that produces is a series of broadsides. So I went from one ad to a series of other ads mentioning this man, initially not by name. Then I fall into the court record, and the court record is giving me his name. And then in the middle of that, he writes his story down, and then Thomas Fleet he, he's the printer. He, he publishes this thing. And it's like, wow. And then these broadsides come out. Um, you can either look at those as cautionary tales or uh, just, I think, uh, this very fascinating and entertaining moment. Because this is how people entertain themselves. I know it sounds kind of uh, morbid, but gossip is good. Gossip and, and, and news of people killing one another, that's the stuff that makes early American history. We were well, very valuable. We've, we've also, in this in this conversation, we've all also referenced uh, Quentin Tarantino and Law and Order, which is this same stuff, <laughs> just in a in a more contemporary format, right? Right. And see, it, it's, it's like a document. I, I, I'm glad you gave me that Tarantino reference because I tend to use that in my next class. Okay. I'm going to give them this account. <laughs> Have them read it aloud. Read it the way we used to read it in that 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 pitch perfect British English, and then engage the document as a class. What is he saying? What's going on here? Don't give them the whole narrative because most people don't have the whole narrative just yet. That doesn't happen until you know later. Printers begin to print uh, how he tries to defend himself in court, and. That, that scene, that macabre scene of him being stabbed or accidentally <laughs> falling upon the knife, that's where it gets Tarantino-esque. But I think yeah. that captures students' imaginations and really make them critically think about unfreedom and slavery in a way that's accessible. You know? absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And it, it I, and you know, no, what you've told us about the original document not being there, the original ad is so fascinating because that's, you know, just from the, our, our work as historians, that's the, the document that set the whole thing in motion, but it's lost, lost to the archival record. So how many ads are lost to the archival record? Like, I mean, you're, you get, you're offering us a pretty extensive collection of ads for runaway native Americans. Right. But this is, just a percentage of, of what we have 
and then that the window into both Julian's humanity, but also into the slave owning mindset of human beings being property. But then mm. what <laughs> when you own human beings at property as property, that raises some pretty serious issues like one's moral hypocrisy as a Christian or later as a American Enlightenment revolutionary, but also uh, human beings can strike back. Human right. beings can kill you. And, um, and human beings have agency. So all these things that are so important to the historian's craft all come out of this story. Um, if you'll indulge me, I want to I, actually, I want to, can I read to you one of uh, the documents that really jumped out to me? Okay. And um, if you can say a couple words on it. And this is from the, the Boston Gazette, uh, June 9th, 1740. And the text is, ran away from his master, the reverend, Reverend Mr. Johnson Strafford, a pretty handsome Indian man named Pallas Worrison, about 27 years old. He speaks good English, is apt to get in drink, and affects much to be thought a scholar, to talk about religion, preaching to the Indians. He had on a white linen uh, worked cap, a brown cambric coat lined uh, with red, a lightish uh, drugget jacket, and towel breeches. And he had with him a good fiddle on which he delights to play. Whoever shall take up said fellow and bring him to his said master shall have four pounds reward and all necessary mm. charges paid. And that gets reprinted a couple of times. And I just found that ad, which is, you know, a document composed by white slave owners and their industry of, of uh, owning and maintaining and disciplining human beings. But it, it gets a little bit of of this guy's humanity, um, right. you know. He's 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 educated. He, um, uh, he 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 likes to drink, and then and then he wants to talk about religion. And I guess the subtext there is that the, the Reverend uh, Johnson, who owned him, did not like the way he was preaching to his fellow Indians. Right. Right. That um, and it. I, I just found that such a fascinating window. And I'm wondering about, you know, that, yes, these are documents produced by the white slave owners, but how, reading these documents, you know, as um, as the subaltern studies group would say, across the archival grain, um, how much were you able to get out of these documents about the, the humanity of these women and men that have run away from servitude? You know, I, I recently... Uh, published a, uh, a few articles where I began to rethink what we we know about authorship. Who controls the text? Because traditionally we would say the subscriber owns the text, but the subscriber is, in this case, just thinking about the ad that you read, the subscriber is giving you this information that is speaking to a level of, uh, of co-signing on the part of the Indian and on the part of his owner. But we have to like step back and, and, and ask ourselves, is authorship solely the person who either composes, writes, or pays for the text? I would argue not. I would argue that authorship needs to be rethought. Uh, and so in my more recent work, of which this is a part, I'm trying to expand the definition because what you have, what you just said, it's just not only beautiful, but it's eloquent because the thing that jumped out at me, in addition to his love of drink and, and perhaps preaching, and I want to come back to the preaching in just a second, 
but the music. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so that really forces readers to think about what the thing, what did that period sound like when you have all these different peoples bringing all their different influences into being funneled and tra- uh, channeled through a Western instrument? You know, it's the beginnings. Ken Burns would be mad with me. It is truly the beginnings of jazz. <laughs> Not with Louis Armstrong, but with this kind of amalgamation of different orientations, be it Native American in this particular case, African and European. That's jazz. But back to the religious part, because I do want to touch on that, uh, because I, I do a lot of that as well. Uh, scripturalization is a, a, a I, I don't think Vincent... Winbush is the author of it, but I think he uses it perhaps in the most interesting way. And I think I'm going to adapt his use of it to say this. I think you're right, Mike. His master is not happy with the way he's preaching because once the Bible enters that native body, it's reprocessed in a way that when the man opens his mouth, he's giving you a, an interpretation of scripture that is just as violent as the interpretation that his master initially gave him. That's what we mean by scripturalization. You take it, you process it, and then you give it back. And so he cannot, uh, now we're interpreting, he cannot preach to the extent native masses in a way that they can't see themselves in. You know, and so Christianity on its face is there's nothing wrong with it. What's wrong with it is how we interpret it to indoctrinate other people. And what you have in this particular instance, I'm glad you read that one, um, is a clear reference to some that they're reading the Bible differently. And he's not the only one. There are others who are reading the Bible differently. And that's what, again, the document is not this two-dimensional thing. It becomes, uh, I think Reese taught me many years ago, a nice fancy French word, uh, a tableau vivant, a living mm-hmm. picture. But you got to know how to, to see that world. You got to use some historical imagination. Uh, um, R.G. Collinwood's work, the idea of history. You have to have that imaginative capacity to step into the document and then allow it to slowly move around you. And so as you were reading, I kept seeing people hearing this ad being read for the first time and debating whether or not they're going to even dare bother to like capture this man, but also being fascinated by the fact that maybe the first place we might want to start is at a pub or a tavern since he fancies drink. And since he likes preaching, the best preachers in this period are always those who take to that kind of uh, uh, great awakening stump. And that's what I think it was 40 that you said. By that time, the great awakening is moving in New England, right? And so you, you, you can almost see him on top of, uh, in front on a pallet or something, um, proselytizing to Native American peoples, using the fact that he's Native as a way of attracting new listeners. So is, is it going to be hard to find? But it's only saying you don't have to look too far, <laughs> you know. But will he go idly into that good night? That's where the, that that warning at the end 
brings me back to Julian. It's like, just yeah. because he's a yeah. man of faith, just because he likes to drink, just because he's also, you know, artful and in terms of enjoying playing music, he can also be incredibly dangerous if you're not careful. Yeah, no, so, that, that, that's, that, that, that is just such a fascinating portrait. And, and again, though, the way his humanity comes out through that document right. written by people that are trying to dehumanize him to treat him as property and circulate him as property. Not only has he been owned, but he is now lost. And right. the author of the documents calling out to you, you know, white man, hey, I'll give you some money if you go get my property that is that is a human being. Um, I, I just found these these documents so rich and just so such incredible windows into this world. You see, that's another aspect about this that um, I think is interesting, how, how, how print, going back to Benedict Anderson's work, facilitates the construction of a culture of, uh, a culture of surveillance. People are very observant during this period. Whereas now, you know, I, I, I like to walk over a student the other day accidentally because I'm, I'm so focused on getting to my classroom, I'm not looking in front of me. I'm thinking to myself, talking to myself half the time. My students think I'm crazy, but I'm not. And they're sitting, they're walking around looking at their phones. And then we collide, you know, and it's like, oh. Uh, and then if you were to ask me, what did this student look like? I couldn't tell you other than their gender, right? But yesterday, we took a moment to really take inventory of a person because Body markings can tell you a great deal about a person and their status. And so when you're dealing with bodies that have been maimed or scarred or branded, or if they have amputations or clipped ears, these are all telltale signs of status that people were very conversant in. And that's another one of these things. It's like when subscribers are soliciting the public, the, the, the paper becomes a way of bringing us together excuse me, bringing us together in a way that I'm fascinated about. The past is truly a foreign country. And and you see it in these ads where people are are reduced down to dollars and cents or pounds and shillings, you know, and their humanity is being compromised. But within the ad itself, you can also see a struggle over the text because in order for you to advertise about a person, you had to engage that person. And, and in that engagement, in that engagement, this is where the co-signing thing starts to happen. And, and that's one of the things that uh, my, my fellow book historians would debate me over. And, and, and as I said to them, the debate continues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, so this, this um, in addition to thinking about Benedict Anderson, um, your work got me thinking about James C. Scott and uh, weapons of the weak and strategies of resistance. Yes. Um, what a- what aspects or what examples of resistance did you see in these documents from um, these Native American runaways? Okay, now that's, this is going to get really interesting because I see resistance in references, for example, of Native Americans who speak broken English. It raises the question of what do they know? How much of their indigenous culture do they still have? Uh, especially in New England, because New England uh, 
went out of their way to produce religious texts that were printed in native tongue. You know, and, and so what 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 has survived the 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 frontal assault of colonization in, in, in New England and elsewhere? But in terms of direct signs of, of resistance, you see it in the form of weaponry natives are taking with them. They're stealing guns, uh, knives. So you you know we're just not doing hunting. We 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 also using this for protection. Other forms of resistance come in the form uh, of jewelry some would wear. So there are references to uh, earrings and, and, and bracelets, things of this nature. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't see wampum, which was one of the things that I was looking for. It's, it's, a, it's a mnemonic device that natives use to contract agreements and and remember the past and stuff like that. But you do see jewelry, you do see uh, 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 tools that can be used as weapons. You do see speech surviving. You do see uh, tattooing. Natives were tattooing their bodies. And so that that kind of cultural uh, sign is still on their person. And so they're resisting in that way. Some are uh, achieving agency by not letting that go. Uh, and then you have the aspects of culture. And so you get a little, in some of these acts, you get a little bit of everything. You get resistance in the flight itself, resistance in maybe a knife or a gun being taken to protect yourself. You get into issues of agency when you start talking about how, uh, and, and owners, they remarked upon this all the time, how they styled their hair. Very mm-hmm. important thing for Native people. How you style your hair, what type of jewelry that you have, do you have any body markings that speaks to your ethnicity? That's when you start getting to agency and cultural kind of things. And, and, and so in one ad you have, you can potentially have, and I, I think you have it in Julian's case, all three working. Because clearly he did not interpret the religion that was given to him the same way. Clearly, he did not believe uh, he should be put to death. Clearly, he felt as though his life was just as important as Rogers. So much so that when he had to confront the choice of himself or Rogers, he said, it's going to be me. <laughs> you know, And the rest kind of fell out the way it, it, it did. But and I think I called him in his in the intro. uh in many ways, he reminds me of the generation before the, the 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 praying Indian towns that were once in New England. They converted to Christianity, but their Christianity was slightly different. Uh, and so you got kind of a, this this mixture of of conflicting perspectives that find form in in, in Julian other Native Americans as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, you've been really generous with your time and we're we're starting to push oh. on over over an hour and I to be honest, I could I could talk for another hour with you, but let me give you um two two questions two. before what's that? <laughs> that part. Let me give you uh, uh two two questions before before I let you okay. go. Um uh first, um can you recommend two books for our audience to read? Oh. Okay. I have to issue a disclaimer before right. I, 
I give you my books. Uh, Bob Gross is my was my advisor when I was at William and Mary. He is my mentor to this day. He is my beloved friend. He is my biggest critic <laughs> in everything that I write. I absolutely love this man and hate him at the same time for forcing <laughs> me to think all the time. His book, The Transcendentalist in Their World, I've only gotten a quarter of the way through it, and it is brilliant. Um, it's, it's dense. It is very dense. The thing I love about Bob's writing, he is a poet at heart, but he has mastered a skill that I'm trying to master myself. He can take dense um, statistic information and turn it into beautifully woven narrative. I love and hate that man for his gift, and he is well, who I want to be in that particular vein when I grow up. Uh, so I'm reading the transcendentalists in, in in their world. It's the follow up to the Minutemen in their world. Uh, great read. Another thing, um, and I this is another disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rereading Octavia Butler's Kindred. Oh, they, yeah. I, uh, yeah. Somebody, uh, I think it's Showtime or HBO, they're about to do a film on it. And I said, I remember oh, that really? book. Yeah. yeah. And I said, let me go back and reread it. And I'm, I, I reread that now. I'm about to do it a third time. Because what I found is that every time I reread something, I find new stuff. Oh, so yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Butler's Kindred and Last book, if you if you don't mind me well, giving a third. Let me let me ju- let me just interrupt before you you go you go for a third. There's also a graphic uh, version, a graphic novel version of Kindred, that's Is gorgeous. It? Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, I've I got have that. To check that out. And, uh, but but Octavia Butler's Kindred. I mean, yeah, that's that's amazing. And as a you know, a scholar of slavery, uh, endorsing that. That yeah. uh, okay. All right. I, so I'm going to indulge you and get and give you a th- give you a third because you're my friend. Okay. Book. What's what's your um, third? My third book is probably one of my favorite authors of all time, next only to Charles Chestnut and, and Langston Hughes, uh, Gene Toomer's Kane. It's a novella. Mm. It's a series of short stories. I just love the way the, ma- the, way the man writes. Uh, Harlan Renaissance writer. Uh, I, I, I don't know what to call this work other than good. Uh, it's, it's part poetry. <laughs> it's part short story. It's part novel. It's a very small work but it is one well worth the read and reread and reread i think i've been i i, I pick up tumor when i want to get inspired about writing that, that's how much i love yeah. the man so it's like yeah but the earlier two bob's book transcendentalism in the world great read so far uh and octavia butler's kindred uh yes i'm about to go and read that third time and then hope i'm gonna keep my fingers crossed mike that whoever's doing the cinematic version of it, do it justice. Yeah. Yeah. And I will check out the graphic novel. Thanks for bringing that to my attention because yeah, yeah. sometimes graphic graphic novel people get it better, get it, you know, they, they get the essence of the work better Then then I know that's, that's an odd statement, but sometimes films suck. Oh, don't cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> they don't always, you know, they too much hit the cutting room floor. I'll put it like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Kind of, uh, yeah. So, hey, finally, um, what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next? I mean, I I, I, I know and it's something that we didn't quite get to, uh, but um, you're doing a gendered analysis of this history. Yes. Um, very quickly, I, let me deal with the gender question. Uh, yeah. For runaways in general, women usually represent about 10 percent of the population. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of scholarship about why that's the case. If we're talking about Native Americans, it's still about roughly 10%. We talk about African Americans, roughly 10%. Uh, indentured service, roughly about 10%. It, it dances between 5 to 9% sometimes. And scholars have theorized or interpreted the record to mean that women found other ways to uh, to express their discontent or to resist or to achieve agency. And yes, Runaways is primarily a, a, a male prerogative for some reason. That dovetails onto my next project, which is called uh, Escaping Matrimony. I, I've found hundreds, if not thousands, of elopement advertisements that I'm working on right now. Uh, where husbands are advertising their wives as fugitives. And there are quite a few where wives are advertising their husbands as fugitives. And it cuts across racial and class lines. I've found these ads for for well-off colonial Americans to middling sort, carpenters, blacksmiths, coopers. Uh, There's even one of a free black that I came across and I found an ad where the woman being advertised for is a Native American woman. So it's, it's all there. Uh, again, all of this started with me just looking in the newspaper, right beside a runaway slave, a runaway Native American, a runaway servant. You will see an ad like, um, Maria has left my bed and board for the past 16 months. Please do not extend any credit to her on my account, else I will no longer support her. And then sometimes, and more often than that, Maria would go to the same printer and say, uh, I have not left my husband. He has abandoned our bed and board for the local wench who happens to be a prostitute about town. And so, and so you get these golden nuggets of, uh, of, of the past. And so that book will be coming out next year. Um, uh, full disclosure, that book is huge in terms of uh, the number of pages. Uh, I couldn't believe how much I found. And I'm looking well, forward to that. Gossip's good one. reading, and that's that sounds <laughs> that yeah. sounds like a page turner. <laughs> it, it, you know it. I, I, and then after, yeah, yeah, I, I just, the, you know, short story. I got into the papers two decades ago thinking that I'll be in it for a few years and then I'll be done. Fast forward almost my entire career f- and I'm still in the A few decades. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, this is, would it let me go? Because really, uh, that's the way it works with me. I, I let the sources tell me where I need to go. And I, I like a detective, I, I, I run down that information until I'm happy with the, the end result. 
And the other project that I'm, I'm working on, I'll be hiring some uh, graduate students as research assistants to help me with this. We're, we're going to uh, produce a database uh, tentatively entitled Politics of the Feet. Well, I'm looking primarily in New England and I'm focusing on slavery, servitude, uh, for both Native Americans, Africans, and, and, and um, servants as well. But I'm also including in this database uh, the stuff that I have for uh, husbands and wives. And so that's the next project after I finish with Escaping Matrimony. The database will be my next big project. And, and, and we're, we're talking right now with the library here about how we will make it um, available to the public. And so that's the next project. But before I forget, I do have to do a plug for a, a, a forthcoming database about Native Americans. It, it, it's coming out of Brown University. It's called Stolen Relations. I'm in talks with them right now about taking the book and, and letting them use the data that's in it. But that should be coming out relatively soon. Stolen Relations, Brown University. Very interesting database. Uh, I'm working at full disclosure. I'm working with the organizers of that database, and it has a lot of promise because they're not only looking at uh, uh, runaway advertisements, they're looking at other documents as well. That's fantastic. So and that sounds like a great example of digital humanities. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Bly, Tony, thank you so much for <laughs> chatting with me today. I, I really appreciated this. And, um, you know, I could go on for another hour or two. So how about we do uh, we do uh, a repeat when uh, the next book comes out? Absolutely. You, you know, you know where I live at. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, in, my off, I'm in my <laughs> second home right now as we speak. As, as, as Jeff Dem said to me, do you ever go home? Here it is. Um, today is a holiday, isn't it? Yeah, it's a holiday. Yeah, yeah. When it's, you're, it's hey, I can day. see you when you're surrounded by books, you are home. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, ditto. You too, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well Jody, thank Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank so this you. has been a conversation with Antonio T. Bly about Escaping Slavery, a documentary history of Native American runaways in British North America, published by Lexington Books in 2022. Dr. Bly is the Peter H. Shattuck Endowed Chair in Colonial American History at California State University, Sacramento. I'm your host, Michael Van, also of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.